chapter 15, the yoga of the Supreme Person, or as I said, Purushottam Yoga. We're still in a very, you know, that jnana phase. So today as well, just as we're reading through this, is, it's very impersonal. It's very big picture. When we first started the Gita, it was still a lot more personal. It was work. It was devotion. And now Krishna is, of course, allowing Arjuna to see to a certain degree even past him or at least past that particular form and this is the journey of the spiritual aspirant really and I remember when we were talking about the gunas and we said you know it's sattva is a wonderful time to really bring the jnana yoga part and usually to bring from tamas it's helpful to start with karma yoga then you know when you're in rajas let's do the bhakti yoga because otherwise rajas can get really restless and scattered and the bhakti will give it the direction of where do I want this energy to go and then comes jnana and interestingly that's how the Gita has also been directed we start out and Krishna is just talking about action and he's just talking about you know do what you need to do you know get in there be active in this world fight, fight. that battle you know don't just sit on the sidelines and then of course he brings it in and just love me and worship me and about self-offering more and more about how to give yourself and now he's really coming into that jnana and it's just really helpful to see even if you have a bent more towards an intellectual understanding of the spiritual path try not to fully see the entirety of the spiritual path through that prism see if you can really bring these other two aspects even more so and of course if you already have that uh, karma yogi attitude and you have an open heart a constantly loving soft heart that's when you want to lift so that the devotion doesn't become too emotional does not even create attachment even to a certain degree to the guru himself and that's when that jnana aspect and so it's almost like krishna is saying is now allowing arjuna after having really folded in him into his arms he's now letting arjuna also see a much larger picture so let's see what today's picture is. This is verse 1. The blessed Lord said, They, the wise, speak of the imperishable Ashwatha tree, with its roots above and its branches below. Its leaves are the Vedic hymns. Whosoever understands this tree of life knows the meaning of the Vedas. Let's go into the second one as well. Its branches extend below and above, nurtured by the gunas. Its buds are the sense objects. Small roots extend also downward into the world of men, impelling man to action. So Krishna starting with this really vivid very beautiful image, it's a visualization and all of us need to really tune into it. He's talking about a tree, it's an inverted tree, it's called the Ashwatha tree. In a previous chapter, I don't know if you remember where Krishna says, among trees, I am Ashwatha. And we talked about Ashwatha is the people tree, which is of course a very sacred tree. Um, its scientific name is also Ficus religiosa. So even in the ficus family, it's the religious ficus, very pious ficus. And it is under the Ashwatha tree, also known in this context, the Bodhi tree, that Buddha 
attained his enlightenment. So it has a very deep rooted <clears throat> kind of connection to the esoteric aspect of the spiritual path. Now Krishna of course is flipping the, the imagery a little bit and he's saying this is not just a regular tree, it's upside down. So when we visualize an upside down tree, what are we seeing? The roots are up, the trunk goes down and then the branches are spreading outward and of course downward away from the roots as branches tend to do. Now what is this tree? It is of course the human nervous system. Uh, not just the physical nervous system, but more appropriately, the <clears throat> astral nervous system, the nadis. And what's happening here? You've got the roots and Krishna says the roots are above. So of course our roots are what? Is the sahasrara. Our roots are our brain on a physical level. is the concept of the roots? Roots are about where the tree receives its nourishment from. It is the source of life for the tree. If the tree doesn't have any roots, well, there is no tree. So we've got our roots and they're up here and they're connected to this vast infinite network of being. And that's where we are drawing our life force from, our power from. That is the source of our nourishment. However, that tree, you know, that nourishment enters into our spine, which is our trunk. And then what it does is it spreads outward. And these are the branches. And our nervous system branches out into our entire body. And Krishna says, its leaves are the Vedic hymns. And in the second verse he says, its buds are the sense objects. So like our nervous system, what happens when this life force, this energy goes out into the body? It enlivens the body and it allows us to receive sensory input from the world. It was interesting to see the leaves are the Vedic hymns. And on one level it sounds like, ah, this must be something really, you know, deeply spiritual. But what are the Vedic hymns particularly? What are the Vedas? Veda in, you know, just Ved means knowledge. But what do the Vedas really give us knowledge of? The Vedas are giving us knowledge of essentially the world. Not the physical world alone, but it talks about how to commune with the astral world. It talks about the causal world as well. And it talks about our relationship with the world. It talks about those rituals that will allow us to lead a fulfilled life. That's what knowledge is of this world. How can you lead a completely fulfilled life? And so the leaves are the byproducts when the energy goes out. When, when we say a tree is in bloom, it has leaves. It's, you know, it's alive. It means that the energy is flowing freely. All parts of the tree are receiving adequate energy. So the tree is leading a fulfilled, full, abundant life. And to a certain degree, that's kind of what we're trying to do here, isn't it? We're trying to lead a, an abundant life. We want as many trees, uh, we want as many leaves as is possible. And the buds, Krishna says, are like the sense objects and they bloom every time. The more we kind of get involved in this world, the more energy we give to these buds and the more numerous these leaves become, the more numerous these flowers become and so on and so forth. However, Krishna has two other aspects that he's talking about. He says these branches extend below and above nurtured by the gunas. So again, we have to keep that 
image. You've got the roots, you've got your trunk, which is the spine, you've got your branches, which is the chakras really from where the nervous system begins to expand and extend outward. And of course, the branches that go downward are the tamasic branches. They are the furthest away from the source, the furthest away from your nourishment. So if our nourishment becomes less, these branches are the ones that will start withering the most. When our relationship with God, with the source, is not true, is not full, then what are the branches of our life that will wither? It will be the tamasic, where we'll go into lifelessness, all the things that Krishna talked about, dullness, stupidity, ignorance. And of course, there are also branches in this particular case that grow upward. These are the sattva branches. They're not the roots, they're not the source themselves, but they're the closest to the source. And of course, they manifest themselves as our higher centers, as our higher chakras. More energy we keep here, the more our, our branches are upward. In addition to that, in this imagery, Krishna talks about small roots extend also downward into the world of men, impelling man to action. Now, if you've seen a people tree and a better cousin of the people tree, also of the ficus uh, families, of course, the banyan tree. And in the banyan tree, you really see this, those roots that come down. I mean, that's the most amazing part of a banyan tree, isn't it? That it has these hanging roots, but also people tree does. It has them a little less. And so Krishna also says very sweetly, he's like, small roots, not the big roots of the banyan tree, but small root extend also downward. And so what are these roots that extend downward? As we get involved in the world, we start also sending roots into the world. That then means to us that my nourishment doesn't only come from the source anymore. Now my nourishment also comes from the world. To a certain degree, that is when we get completely attached to the world and dependent on the outside world for our nourishment. And so that's the imagery that Krishna wants us to tune into. Essentially the Ashwatha tree, the people tree, inside us, our own astral and physical nervous system. And that's what Yogananda said, didn't he? He said, the thing about man is that he is the only life form that has an advanced enough nervous system to be able to truly experience God. And that's what this Ashwatha tree is, our kind of highway, the way we can return back to the source, return back to the root from where we came. Whoever understands this tree, Krishna says, this tree of life as he calls it, know the Vedas. Now, of course, on one hand, one way to know the Vedas is how by reading the Vedas and repeating the Vedas over and over again, by following certain rituals, by constantly worrying about which hands we're using and what words we're saying and whether, you know, we've invoked this wrath of this God or have we pleased this particular aspect of nature or we've really tuned into this element completely. And that's how we try to live this world. But Krishna is saying, if you understand this tree of life, you're already in complete knowledge of the Vedas. You'll understand the entirety of this universe. Um, I don't know if you've tuned, you know enough about the story of Adam and Eve. You know, that's the story of creation on the, from the Judaic tradition. 
and Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve live in this beautiful garden, this garden of Eden, and there are two trees in this garden. And one tree is the tree of life, and another tree is the tree of knowledge. And God tells Adam and Eve that you can eat as much from the tree of life, but do not eat from the tree of knowledge. Because knowledge means duality. In order to know one thing, you have to know its opposite. So knowledge is also known as the tree of good and evil. So in us, now these are actually not two separate trees. This is the same one tree. In one of them, the life force goes down and out into the branches to enliven that. And that becomes the tree of knowledge, which becomes the Vedic hymns, which involves us in this world entirely. And the other is the reverse process, which becomes the tree of life, where we return back to the source of life that exists inside us. And so these were the two choices given to Adam and Eve to either eat from the tree of life or to eat the forbidden fruit of the tree of knowledge. And of course, as the story goes, they eat from the tree of knowledge and all of <laughs> everything begins from there. They're banished from the Garden of Eden. They now need to procreate together. And then, of course, you know, the whole story of Genesis is their children and their children's children and their children's children. And we have our own version of that, of course, Brahma. And remember, we had the whole thing, the Saptarishis, and then they have the Ad Adityas, the Daityas and the Adityas and so on and so forth. No, no matter what tradition we're looking at, we all have our version of consciousness entering in and then consciousness getting engaged outwardly and downwardly with the world. If that doesn't happen, then the story, there is no story. But when that does happen, each of our stories individually begin. The true nature of this tree, its beginning, its continuity, its end, cannot be understood by ordinary men. The sage, having felled his Ashwatha tree at its roots with the axe of non-attachment, thinks, I seek refuge only in the primeval Purusha, from whom issues all creation. He seeks the supreme goal from which there is no need to return. So this is the yoga. This is the aspect that we're now using, is the yoga of the supreme person. How do I return to that supreme state of being within myself? and to have that experience of the absolute source of my own being. And Krishna says that the sage, how does the sage attempt that process? The sage having felled, having cut his Ashwatha tree, of course we don't need to cut our spines, don't worry about that, at its roots with the axe of non-attachment. This is a chapter that's focusing a lot on this concept of non-attachment. Now, of course, for us, the cutting of, the, of this tree is essentially a withdrawing of all that life force back into the roots. That's what enlightenment is. When, you, when all that life force that came through down the roots enters into the tree, and then we were able to return that back into the roots, that's when the Sahasrara, the thousand-petal lotus, those millions of rays that are going out into infinity become completely awakened. Now, non-attachment is an interesting thing. It's a very difficult practice, to tell you the truth. It, 
it so easily disguises itself and we've talked about this before as indifference and complacency and this is something we really need to be aware of because for most of us non-attachment is this oh you know i have to just i have to just stay away from all these things and i have nothing to do with these things but that doesn't actually create non-attachment you know that just creates repulsion and anything in this world if you create repulsion there's going to be attraction in the other end swami kriyananda would say the thing that brings us back again and again to this world is longing and regret that which we push and that which we try to draw towards ourselves so when we think of non-attachment as this get away from me idea this is what sets in is indifference and complacency yogananda called indifference and complacency the two strongest arrows in the quiver of satan because it's too it it's strong not because we have a natural tendency towards you know putting out less energy but it's strong because it masquerades itself as a spiritual mm-hmm. quality. quality we think that by not particularly engaging with this world by having this state of indifference to the world and complacency which means i'm just you know i don't need anything so i'm just not going to do anything i don't care enough about this i don't care enough about that so i'm just not going to put out any energy because i'm so non attached to these things and that's where really our problems begin when i first came on to the spiritual path and i read a lot i started with gyana and that was a big big mistake on my part not a mistake of course that's just how master planned it out for me but you know i had to go i had to go back a lot but i started with gyana and of course you read any scripture or anything it's like non attachments like up there just detach yourself from this world this world's maya this world's a dream you know nothing of any worth is in here and just kind of stay away from it and there's of course that's a very also a very kali yuga energy which is like you have to really push this world away from you and in doing that because i didn't have the consciousness and i certainly didn't have the karma yoga energy and i didn't have the bhakti energy you know i became so indifferent and so complacent i just thought that it meant i didn't have to put out any energy it meant that i could treat anyone however i wanted to and it doesn't matter because you know they're just my <laughs> you know what difference does it make because in fact i don't want to treat them too well because then i might just you know get attached to them so i better in fact treat them a little harshly <laughs> just to be on the safe side or if nothing else let me just shut them out of my life and i'm not talking about just people i'm talking about my own perceptions i'm talking about everything in fact being non attached to your own personality and to the way you perceive the world into in the way you you express yourself that's in fact really hard things objects people somewhere or the other life will keep you know bringing them back until you get it but your own self that's the hard thing to be completely non attached and thinking about non attachment from that perspective uh, this kind of thought came to me of say you're really hungry right and we say but i'm non attached i'm just not going to eat this food but you're still hungry 
and so you're still thinking about food or i mean any of us who fasted we know by the way all your examples are always food, with food. food yeah i don't know why i'm so sorry Narayani like, knows that i love food so like, it's like maybe that's what i'm like trying to get away or from or whether cooking a meal or which i never this. cook <laughs> so at least i can talk about that it's so sweet like food is Food's there like right there in my head like spiritual path food they must have a very close relationship Anyway, um, sorry about that. No, no. So, if we just kind of abstain from eating, that doesn't make us fulfilled, does it? I mean, I'm still hungry, and I'm still thinking about food. I mean, I can keep pushing it away. It's great for willpower, but at some point or the other, I'm going to have to eat. And then, when I eat, how am I going to eat? Ravenously. You know, I mean. uh we just have a friend of ours who's joined uh, you know barakiel and shamini uh, hopefully you'll meet them at some point um so when we were young monks bara and i we would fast together every thursday and we would wait till midnight 12 o'clock we'd stay awake we'd have food ready you know it was just ki bara bachte hi is like uh, you know and that was the worst meals because you couldn't enjoy it you didn't really do anything you just but you just because we were hungry and we were craving that food so in the whole day we pretended that we were non attached and look at us you know we don't need to eat but inwardly all we could think of back then was ah when is that 12 o'clock going to come or when is sometimes you know if we were strong enough we waited till breakfast in the morning but think of the other way what if you've eaten enough food and now you cannot eat anymore and somebody says no here eat more what will you say i'm full at that time you will not think of food anymore you'll never wonder what have i missed oh no now new dishes are coming if only i had once you're full that's it no energy needs to go out in perpetuity to constantly stay with that thought and this is something that we need to tune into our non attachment isn't about pushing things away it is filling ourselves with something else and in this particular case of course it's filling ourselves with god and in filling ourselves with god we have to naturally include everybody else in that process we have to include god in all forms but first and foremost especially through meditation i mean thank god when i came on to the path and found this path and found a meditative technique and learned how to actually withdraw your life force which is the true you know yogic way of detaching from this world and when you do that and you rest in yourself and you're filled in that moment when temporarily in meditation what we're doing is essentially cutting that tree because we withdraw our energy and at least try to hold it as high as we can it, you know if nothing else at the point between the eyebrows and when you rest in that state and you're as close to the roots as you're ever going to be that's when you know ah oh, this is the state that i've been seeking throughout and when you fill yourself enough with this state then it doesn't so much matter what's going on around the world on outside in the world and so really tune into non-attachment from this perspective you not so much as starving myself as filling myself with something far more nourishing than food <laughs> those reach the eternal goal who crave no human honor 
who having severed the bonds of attachment are free from infatuation, who are untouched by the pairs of opposites such as pleasure and pain, and who are established in the self within. How many times has Krishna told us this? Don't, you know, get into honor, praise or blame. Don't be untouched by play, pleasure and pain. Don't get involved with the pairs of opposites. Free from infatuation. I like that word, infatuation. You know, it's more than desire. Infatuation suggests that we're almost, you can say, hypnotized. You know, once you're in the sway of infatuation, it's like there's no getting out of it. Sri Yukteswarji tells a story of when he was a young boy and he said he wanted a dog. Mm. And he, it was a stray dog. It was this, he said it was the ugliest dog. But he was infatuated with that dog. And he said, I cried and I cried and my parents would say, no, take this, you know, really thoroughbred, you know, take these really beautiful dogs. We'll give you anything you want. But why do you want that really dirty, ugly, probably disease-ridden stray dog? And Sri Yukteswar was adamant that that's the dog that he wanted. And he says later on, he says, because when you're infatuated with something or when you have desire for something, it creates a halo of attractiveness around it. And then you're blinded now by that halo and you see nothing else except that you want this desperately and that's how we are with life we don't really know whether things are actually going to be good for us or bad for us or you know it'll really be what we're looking for but we just want it so desperately we're so infatuated by the multiple leaves that our tree is making at the wonderful blooms of flowers that are coming through we're just so infatuated by that temporary fragrance that all else is lost in the process and the only way to be able to loosen that infatuation is really through non-attachment. That's the Jnana Yogi way. Perfect discrimination of what is it that I'm truly looking for. There's a Zen story as well, you probably heard about it, about a, the monk and his horse. And it's about a monk who loves, you know, a horse that he owns. He re he's really, really drawn to it and so you know he has it always around him but at the same time he's extremely detached his love is true but nothing you know nothing can really bother him he's a monk and one day his horse runs away and everybody's like oh no we knew that this was your favorite horse and it's run away and it's so bad i hope you're okay and and the monk says you know it's okay we'll see what happens it's not a big deal and a few days later the horse returns and now it's brought another horse with it and this is, you know, another beautiful horse, a wild horse. And now people are so excited. It's like, oh my goodness, isn't it amazing that your horse ran away because now it's brought another horse. Isn't this great news? And the monk says, yeah, we'll see. You know, and the monk has a disciple, a very close disciple of his. And one day the disciple is trying to tame this wild horse and riding this horse. And, you know, in the process, he falls off and he breaks his leg. And everybody again in the village is like, oh my goodness, it's so horrible. If only your horse had not run away and brought this other horse. Isn't it bad that, you know, this boy, this your closest disciple has now broken his leg. And then, you know, and the monk says, yeah, we'll see. 
and you know in this is ancient japan or china or whatever and this suddenly you know there's a war that started and the king's decree comes that all able-bodied young men have to fight in the war but of course the disciple who's broken his leg now he doesn't have to fight in the war and so everybody's so happy again oh isn't this wonderful that your disciple broke his leg and they so what are these pleasure and pains that we tune into when we're infatuated with something we say this is what will do it for us but is it Oh, I lost my horse, but now suddenly, oh, now my horse is back and it's brought another horse. Oh, now my disciple broke his leg. Oh, now he doesn't have to fight the war. And it's just the same thing, up and down, up and down, up and down. And this monk's always like, we'll see. Because it's all just temporary. The same thing that's giving you joy today is probably going to cause you a lot of pain tomorrow. You know, we're living in this beautiful house. We had this cyclone come through. Oh, we had water falling in everywhere and you know, everything got wet and everything. I mean, fortunately, we've learned a little bit of non-attachment so we could really, you know, enjoy and that process humor. and it's a great sense of humor, which is a wonderful byproduct of non-attachment. But otherwise, it's like, you know, this beautiful house, but then it's like, oh my goodness, and how much money it's going to take now to fix this and fix that and so on and so forth over and over and over and over again. Where shines neither sun nor moon, nor the light of fire, there lies my abode. Those who reach it pass beyond birth and death. So of course here Krishna is talking esoterically. We talked about this before. Sun is the spiritual eye, moon is the ego. Fire of course is the Manipur, which is our prana, which is the energy that enlivens us, or at least that we think this is where the energy really comes from. And Krishna is saying, where I live, that's beyond even the sun. And of course, because he's talking about the Sahasrara. But the Sahasrara is an abode beyond the material world. That is why in our yogic tradition, in the tradition of Kriya Yoga, we don't focus that much on the Sahasrara. We focus primarily on the Agya, on the Kutastha. Because this is the center that we're able to achieve and ascend into in the body. When a saint goes into a samadhi state where he has completely detached from creation and from the material world, only then he lives in the abode of the Sahasrara. That's when he enters into the samadhi state. But as long as our consciousness is still very much gripped and connected to this world, it is the Agya that is the highest center of awareness for us. And it is there that we place all our focus. So first we get to the sun before we can get to the abode beyond the sun, beyond the moon, which is the egoic center, and beyond the fire, which is our energy that we involve ourselves with in this world. An eternal part of myself, manifesting as a living soul in the world of humanity, attracts to itself the six senses, inclusive of mind, all of which rest in Prakriti. So Krishna is saying, when I enter into the jiva, into a body, I bring with me the mind and I bring with me the senses. So six in total, the five senses. Our senses are that which feeds us all our information and the mind itself, which perceives everything that it is being fed. But Krishna is saying that each time I come, I attract to me these six senses. And then the very next uh, stanza, he says, when the Lord as the jiva, when I as the soul, takes on a body, I take with me, I take with him the mind and the senses. This means he's carrying with, with him again and again this mind and the senses, 
When he leaves the body, he takes with him and departs, even as a breeze wafts scents away from their dwelling in flowers. Because that's a beautiful image. Just as the breeze carries the scent away from the flower, similarly, every time I exit from the body, I take with me the mind and the senses. Which means, again and again, I carry with me everything that I have perceived in this world, everything that I have created, my tendencies, my thoughts, my likes, my dislikes. I just bring them from lifetime after lifetime, over and over. And again, this is why detachment is so important. Otherwise, what happens is, you know, we just, we're just the same person lifetime after lifetime. Yogananda gives this really kind of st uh, not so inspiring reality check to us when he says, you know, all of us think about our past lives and we wonder who we were. But he says, if you weren't really making spiritual progress, chances are that you're more or less exactly as you are right now. And he gave the example of when we go to sleep. He says, think of death purely as sleep. When I sleep, I'll sleep tonight, when I wake up in the morning tomorrow, I'm not going to be a completely different Shurjo. You know, I wasn't like yesterday I was a king and today I'm going to be a pauper and then tomorrow when I wake up I'm going to be a dancer and then day after tomorrow I'm going to wake up and I'm going to suddenly be a deep yogi. No, I'm just going to be Shurjo, 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 Shurjo and the changes that I carry with me, if I've made any change today, I carry that change with me tomorrow. If I make any change tomorrow, I carry that change with me day after. If I make no change, and in most cases, if I've burdened myself even more with judgments, hate, anger, desire, whatever it is, I carry that into my next day and I carry that into my next day. And similarly, I carry that into my next life and I carry that into my next life. And I don't change at all unless I really have practice this vairagya, this complete non-attachment. And primarily, as I keep saying, non-attachment, not just to the world, but to ourselves, to our own personalities, to how we see our particular, you know, involvement in this world, not just the world itself. And Swami Kriyananda, for this, he recommends this really beautiful practice about throwing every night into the fire everything that has happened in the day. Because he wants us to really wipe the slate clean each time. So that when we come again the next morning, it should be carrying absolutely nothing over and recreating from scratch to a certain degree. Everything's new, everything's fresh. Anaya Swami Asha tells, you know, this beautiful sweet moment where when she used to be Swamiji's uh, personal assistant, she said every time she would come the next day to work, she would see in Swami this kind of like, almost like he didn't know whether she's going to come or not, you know? Like, uh, almost this sweet astonishment of, oh, wow, you're, you're wanting to work today again with me. And that's how he looked at every day, completely afresh. Because every night, he threw anything that that day carried. And he threw even in the, into it that, you know, Asha is my personal secretary and therefore this is her duties and this is how she will be and so of course she's going to come tomorrow and of course she's going to fulfill everything that she wants uh, that I've asked of her. But no, the next day is like, oh wow, here you are again. Isn't that wonderful? And that's how he lived every day, throwing a new into the fire so that when he woke up the next day, it was a new opportunity for him to learn all over again.
And then he says, thus he still possesses and enjoys the senses of sight, hearing, smell, taste and touch. Which means even in the astral world, we carry these five senses with us. They're much more heightened, they're much more refined, the astral experience is much more enjoyable, but we're still essentially the same person. Not so hemmed in with the body, not so attached to the physical realities of it, but the vrittis still exist, the chakras and the energy in our chakras are still exactly as they were when we were on earth. They haven't suddenly become better, they haven't suddenly become greater, they're just exactly who we were. And that's a scary thought, which means if every day, this is a thought too, a scary thought to end on, but a wake-up call for each of us. Every day, if you don't make true, real, perceptible spiritual progress, your life will just walk by. And we'll wake up in the next incarnation and we'll be exactly who we were. And this is something Krishna wants us to really think about. This is why Krishna is giving this information to Arjuna. I mean, he's not saying, think about this tree and visualize this tree. He's not interested in the tree. But he is interested in helping us realize how easily drawn we are to the world. How downward is our energy most of the time. Where most of our thoughts live. How much hungry we are, even if we can pretend to be spiritual and non-involved. But how hungry we are still for the same little things, for recognition, for love, for being better than other people. It's just, no matter what we do, no matter how hard we try, inwardly those same vrittis are at work. Those same samskars we've brought over again and again. But if we don't make true spiritual progress daily, then we just carry the same thing again and again into each incarnation. And that's again a very important wake-up call. After Krishna has mollycoddled us a little bit with just saying how much he loves us, which he does, and saying how much it's okay for us to really, you know, work dharmically in this world. Now he really wants Arjuna to say, you know, but it's so much more than that. You have to really learn how to withdraw your life force. You have to really learn what that non-attachment means in the right way. Where you're full of me and therefore you cannot be filled anymore by the world very good very nice well let's see what can be said what can be said <laughs> practically about that i was thinking about that image of the tree upside down and everything really is in the brain hmm. and visualizing those roots you know going upward as antennas really where we receive that life uh, and cosmic energy and the prana and that's where we would like to magnetize more daily on a regular basis of course there is nothing like meditation and kriya yoga to energize the brain but i'm going to propose something very very simple for us to practice and explore if doing that daily helps us to energize and magnetize the brain. Paramahansa Yogananda, as you very well know by now, gave those 39 energization exercises, which we have done many times, mm -hmm. we have explained them, we have done many challenges with them, but there are two particular exercises that work 
primarily with the energy within the brain and how to draw that cosmic energy within us. These two exercises are this. One of them is scalping, is tapping the scalp, just like that, energizing your brain. And the next exercise also related to the brain is just massaging the scalp, moving the skin around your neck, okay? These are two exercises as a part of the 39 energization exercises, Paramahansa Yogananda. Swami Kriyananda created six exercises which he called them the superconscious living exercises. And he chose from those six two exercises that are exactly the same that Yogananda recommended for part of the energization exercises. Those two exercises are the same, just stopping the scalp and massaging the, the brain. But Swami Kriyananda added an affirmation for each exercise. So he suggested that when we are tapping the scalp several times, we affirm, awake my sleeping children, wake. So we just tap our brain and we affirm, awake my sleeping children, wake. Children are our thoughts, our attitudes toward lives, our wrong past habits, and whatever is still in the subconscious needs to be awakened, needs to be lifted up, needs to be redirected, needs to be used outwardly to inspire, to manifest, to create, to uplift ourselves. So whatever is sleeping within us. We need to awake that our thoughts, our brain needs to be alert and always picking up and drawing from those antennas, that superconscious energy. So awake my sleeping children, wake, uh, awake my sleeping children, wake. Okay, that's one exercise. And then the one massaging the skull, Swamiji suggested this affirmation. Be glad, my brain, be wise and strong. Be glad, my brain, brain, be glad, be wise and strong. I mean, wise in the sense of let's choose rightly. Let's choose wisely, daily, always those actions that will bring light and energy and enthusiasm and kindness into whatever we do, whoever, who, whoever we are. And it's so important that we remind ourselves of those two attitudes, our thoughts, how we are using them, how we work with them, our attitude and the brain stimulating the brain and always reminding it. Choose wisely, as Swami Kriyananda's titled one of his books, living wisely, living well. And these two exercises will help us, will remind ourselves what's really important and what are the things that we should be paying attention. So this is going to be the challenge, okay? To practice these two exercises 
every two or three hours. You choose whether two hours every two hours or whether every three hours. Up to you, whatever you decide. When we are whatever. excused at night when we sleep. Mm, yes. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> you choose whatever works for you, but two of these timings are very, very important, which is the moment you wake up in, I mean, in bed itself, just the moment you wake up before even brushing your teeth, washing your face, before doing anything, even half sleeping, <laughs> just do this exercise. Awake, my sleeping children, wake. Awake, my sleeping children, wake several times. And then be glad, my brain, be wise and strong. Be glad, my brain. Be glad, be wise. be wise and strong, okay? The moment you wake up and before you go to bed, because we are going to wake up with that attitude and we will you know, follow through throughout the day and we are going to bed with those affirmations lingering within our mind and to generate such an impression in our super consciousness, in our consciousness that perhaps after seven days we will make that permanent change. And we will bring it with us to our next life, like where no more negative thoughts and wrong actions, at least some of them, we will have already worked. So let's do this let's do as this. a group. Every day for the next seven days, several times a day, every two, three hours, put your alarm. Practice these exercises with the affirmations and see what happens. Two, three, if we do two, three hours, what will be the minimum that we should? The minimum? Like five, so you do the maths. Ah, you are okay, the, math let's see. How many, the mathematician. How many hours do we have? So let's say 16 okay. hours. So at okay. least anywhere between eight, five to eight times. Six to eight yes, days. Six to, yes. All right. That Six sounds to eight doable. Time. Fun. All right. Lovely. <laughs> okay.